Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hey, everybody. If you want to tell the world something or sell the world something, head on over to Squarespace because they're going to help you build the website of your dreams. Say you want to sell some custom merch. Well, you can set up your online store, whether you sell physical, digital, or service products. Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. So go to squarespace.com slash stuff right now and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code stuff and then you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know, the Finders Keepers edition. Losers Weepers. Yeah, I know. So, Chuck, this is like, this is an actual thing. It's not just like a child's fantasy. Yeah. Like, this is law in some places. And while it doesn't actually state losers weepers, I think it's implied. Yeah. It's implicit in the law. Where the finder is the keeper, but you lost it, so you you're legally obligated to weep in public. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny reading <laughs> through some of these examples. It sounds like playground stuff. I'll save it. I'll get to some of these some of these examples, though. I'm like, man, that's not yours. Like, come on, give it <laughs> did up. You, did you say that out loud to yourself while you were? Reading? I did a couple of these. I was like, man, seriously. <laughs> Man, that's Th- not yours. That's not yours. <laughs> I'm just, a, I have a big justice thing, you know. So oh, yeah, me too. It's uh, when I see people acting like a big baby and saying like, well, this money I found on my wall, this is mine. I'm like, no, it's not. Well, you would be a great arbitrator. <laughs> yeah, get out of here. It's not yeah. yours. You'd be like, my ruling is this. Man, <laughs> that's not yours. Give it up. Uh, but no, let's start with John and Mary. Uh, not their real names. <laughs> no, no, I guess that's worth pointing out. <laughs> These are anonymous, uh, an anonymous husband and wife uh, team. From NorCal. Yeah, from Northern California. And they are anonymous because they didn't want a lot of attention and they are still anonymous. Mm-hmm. We'll call them John and Mary. And they are famous. Uh, well, I guess they're not famous, but their case is a little <laughs> famous because they found $10 million and are, you know, what could be $10 million in rare gold coins mm-hmm. buried on their property that they own on a walk. And it's known as the Saddle Ridge Hoard. Uh, in February 2013, they found this, uh, these 1,400 gold coins that no one knows who they belong to, how they got buried there. Mm-hmm. But they found them and took a long time sort of coming out with this. They did it about as smart as you possibly can. Yeah, they didn't rush to the press or anything and say, look what we found. Uh, they took their time because I, I think they rightfully knew that they were onto something pretty special. Yeah, so they were out walking on, on their property, put that away for later, with their dog, and they noticed, I guess, the side of a can coming out of the ground. 
And they went and dug it out, and sure enough, there was a bunch of gold coins in there. Uh, whenever you see a can coming out of the ground, I mean, that's your hope and wish that it's going to be filled with gold coins or jewels or something, right? Yeah. But it never happens, and it actually happened to these people. Yeah. And, and so they went back again and again and again, and they ended up pulling eight cans filled with gold coins, pure gold coins, out of the ground on their property. And it became very apparent based on the state of preservation of the cans and the dates of the coins in the cans that somebody had buried this no more recently than the very beginning of the 20th century and probably sometime in the late 19th century. Yeah, and here's a hint. If you ever happen to unearth a whatever, a can or a glass jar or something full of money buried on your property, Mm -hmm. just keep digging. Yeah. That may be it, but maybe not. Yeah, I wondered like what kind of excavation they undertook once yeah. <laughs> once they were like, Oh, there's more there. I'm quite sure they cleared that ground. It's 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 verified there's no more cans. So if you're talking actual money face value, it's about twenty seven grand, but because these are rare finds in great, great condition, most of mm-hmm. uh, most of these coins, um, they're thinking that uh it could be worth as many as uh, as much as ten million bucks. So they're going to sell it. Well, they have been. And donate some of this money. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, it's nice that they're, they're donating some of it, but it, it really sort of um, opens up this question of, hey, what does the law say about finding something, period, much less like on my property? Right. It, uh, the finder's keeper's law, basically, is what you're talking about. And that's really what it's called in case laws. Fi- the finder, finder's keeper's laws are rules. That's right. So um, there was a lot going on here. These guys, John and Mary, owned the land that these coins were found on. And that was a huge mark in their favor. Oh, yeah. Um, but they're, in the United States, it really depends on what state you're in, uh-huh. what court you go to, what judge you happen to pull. The case law on it is so uh, all over the place and so piecemeal that it's it's really almost the luck of the draw. And there are more things that you can do to compound your case to make it more likely that the thing is is yours. But really, it, it comes down to who has the best claim on whatever is found. Yeah, like Somebody could come forward, still probably, or could have come forward with John and Mary and said, wait a minute, that was my great-great-grandpappy Clark's uh, land, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure he did not intend to Clark you those gold coins. Right. Uh, So, like, we actually should have a claim as his family um, to to take this stuff from you. And, like, that could go – that could very legitimately go to court – to be de- decided by a judge. And right. again, like you said, it's who has the more legitimate claim. Um, what really helps them is, like you said, it was on their land and that it's uh, super old. Right, exactly. So the fact that it's very, very old means that the person who buried them is probably dead, may not even have any living heirs any longer. Um, that's one thing, that it's, it's old. The second thing is that it's old, but it's also not necessarily archaeological. Right. It's, it's money. So it's the, the gold coins are the definition of treasure. 
And what we've entered now is called treasure law. And there's different types of things as we'll see, but there's one one category of found property is is called treasure. And what they found was treasure. It was a gold coin. It was very old, but it wasn't necessarily archaeological. Again, it was on their property. And so had somebody come along and said, my grandpappy Clark buried those back when my family owned this property, that's ours. They would have a claim. And, and pretty much any time something valuable, especially $10 million valuable, is found in the United States, it is automatically going to get hammered out in court because yeah. the laws are so vague and piecemeal and arbitrary that it's going to going to be hammered out in court who has the bigger claim. But because John and Mary found something that was old, that was buried by someone, no one knows who buried it, and that it was found on their property, they have a pretty good claim. Now, if you were going to come and say, my grandpappy buried that, um, your claim would be, that was that belonged to my family at one point in time. We think it still does. It just happened to be buried and forgotten or left um, on land that these people bought. Now, there's a pretty good chance that the court would say, yeah, but they bought the land. Right. And depending on what state you're in, that's that. If they owned the land, they owned everything on it. Yeah, or bought the car with money in the trunk or the house with a super valuable painting buried in the attic. It's sort of all the same. Um, and, and this is modern times. This has been going on since the dawn of time when people would lose or bury something. Mm-hmm. And they've always had – I think back then it was a little more cut and dried, like in ancient Rome. If you found something like that, uh, half of it went to the emperor, just sort of no if ands, or buts. Right. Uh, if In modern England, if you find something um, old and rare, uh, they say, that belongs to the queen – um, but here's here's a, like a good uh, fee for you. Now now hand it over. And that's very very new. And that's kind of that represents the the new thinking in treasure law or, or found property law, which is look, we can't just let you keep this stuff that may have not just like monetary value, but actually like cultural value as well. Sure. Like, so we need to have something to do with this. So England just went, or I should say, the UK just said. Everything you find that is valuable or antique um, and archaeological, that belongs to the crown. But the crown is going to pay you market value, no questions asked, right off the bat. So it's not finders keepers, but it's finders, here's, here's a bunch of money you didn't have before for finding this and bringing it into us. And the point of this, from the position of the crown or the UK government, is that it encourages cooperation with archaeologists and historians to preserve cultural stuff rather than just having it sold out onto the, um, the, the commercial market to private collectors because of finder-keepers laws. And that's how it was before 1996. Yeah. I mean, if, if it's in the UK today and you find something that is not an ancient gold coin, but if you just find, a, let's say, you know, 10,000 pounds bundled together, uh, buried in your in your attic or on the street for that matter. Right. Uh, I think you have to file paperwork at a police station. Uh, the owners have 28 days to claim it, and then it's yours. In the United States, it varies from state to state and uh, sometimes even county to county. But generally, it's sort of the same thing, like report it to the police. They need to advertise the lost property for a week and then wait about 90 days depending on where you are, to see if anyone claims it. Mm -hmm. And then after that, they might say you can keep it. 
Yeah. But, but maybe. It just depends on where you are. That's um that's like contemporary property that you found, right? Yeah, yeah. This is not like ancient gold coins. This is I found a bundle of cold hard cash. So let's let's take a break and then we'll take a detour into contemporary property because there are like a whole other set of laws that are like are kind of important too, all right? Yes. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. Hey there, everybody. Here's some bonus stuff you should know. This time it's about traveling to Orlando for business. Orlando has tons of places to host your conferences and meetings. Dr. Michael Edwards, CEO of Ocean Insight, said it best. Orlando is as much a business capital as an entertainment one. And when the day is done, you can kick off each evening at one of 46 Michelin-rated restaurants. What's not to love? So check out Orlando, where the possibilities for business travel are unbelievably real. Learn more at orlandoforbusiness.com. Okay, Chuck, so like we said, there's, there's some categories for, for property, found property. One of them is treasure, where it's just straight up, I found eight cans of gold coins and it's treasure. Some, in the UK, there's not really a distinction between that and, say, um, like uh, archaeological artifacts. It, they're virtually one and the same. In the US, because the, the age of the country is young enough, there's a distinction between an archaeological artifact and, say, like treasure that's found. Right. But there, then there's contemporary property where the person who owned it is probably still alive. If not, the first generation after them is still probably around. Um, and that, that contemporary stuff is basically broken out into three subcategories. There's lost, abandoned, and mislaid property. And depending on the status of the property, um, the finder may or may not get to keep it. And even that, then it depends on where you are. Yeah, so as far as those categories go, abandoned property is something that uh, they say is forsaken by a previous owner who doesn't have any intention of coming back for it. So they've right. abandoned they have abandoned it. Can you imagine like how you would tell whether something's abandoned or not? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, unless they literally leave a note saying, 
Finders keepers. <laughs> I don't want this anymore. Get this away from me. You know, what would it be? Like a big bag of cocaine that somebody left there? Like, I can't do anymore. This is really bad for me. I don't want this. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. That is, the, that is the one that is the most confusing. For sure. Uh, the other two are much more straightforward. Lost, obviously, is like uh, the example they gave is you, you lost your uh, engagement ring in the street. Um, and clearly, it's something that you want back and maybe have tried to come back and find. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have uh, dropped it or lost it somehow. Right. Uh, and this m- mislaid is even more interesting because uh, that is something that you in- intentionally put somewhere but then kind of forgot it. And another good example, like you went to the bank and were filling out your, your form and then, oh, my goodness, you got a cell phone call and had to bolt real quick. Mm-hmm. And you left that money on the counter that you wanted to deposit in the bank. That is mislaid um, because you – clearly had an intention for it and were just way late or whatever. Right. So it's not technically lost because you put it somewhere on purpose. Yeah. Whereas lost, like you drop something in a parking lot, you may not even know you're missing it at the time. Right. Or you can't find it. Right. Um, Mislaid is just like you're no longer where you put that thing down, but you intended to do something with it. There was intent behind it, but you forgot or something, or you got called away. Yeah. And that that property, mislaid property, is supposed to be uh, guarded by whoever owns the property. So in that Mm -hmm. case, it would be the bank. Somebody from the bank should go over there, collect that money, and just set it aside and be like, that guy will be back for this. Right, which is, it's funny because, you know, the whole lost and found box, you think that's just like a good Samaritan thing. Well, really, it's everybody just covering their behinds, legally speaking, I guess. Probably so. I see it differently now, and I'm a little more bitter because of it. So, this Arizona case is one of the ones where I got a little little PO'd. I was, okay. A little bit. So, this is a man died... He hid half a million dollars in cans, ammo cans, ammunition cans in the walls. Mm -hmm. And years later, the person who owned that house were doing some renovations, out come these cans, and they were like, oh, my God, it's a half a million dollars. This is ours. So this man's daughters, they knew, like, Dad loved to do stuff like this. He loved (laughs) to hide things. (laughs) He loved to hide things away. Uh, they they searched before they sold the house. They even searched, but obviously did not find these these cans stashed in the walls. Uh, and when this came out, these daughters came forward and were like, you know, that's our money. That's our our you know should have gone to us in a will, but my kooky dad stashed it in the wall again, jerk. And uh, these people fought them for that and said, no, finders keepers. It's in our wall. We bought this house. Well, so, I mean, I, I can understand your ire and your anger at that. Uh, that's what I'm like. As soon as someone stepped forward, I would have been like, oh, well, here's your money then. Like, this is your father's. Sure. It, belong- but, it doesn't belong to me. But what if you were like, actually, we've got a like legitimate legal claim to this. Because depending on where they were, and this is Arizona, but, I mean, depending on the state— when you buy property from somebody, you buy the property and everything on that property, whether anyone knows it's there or not, it belongs to you as the property owner. For example, Texas is huge on that, huge on private property ownership, so much so that if you own property in Texas and there's an archaeological site on your property, that's yours, bub. You can set it on fire. You can turn it into a rec room. You can do whatever you want with that stuff. 
that's your property. That's how that's how Texas views uh, um, private property rights, right? So these people may have been like, well, we're from Texas. That's just how we do it in Texas. <laughs> they had a legitimate claim to challenge. I get what you're saying. But they also may have felt like, hey, we bought this property and this came with the property, so this is ours. Sorry. That whole losers weepers thing, I think, is what they were invoking. Yeah, I mean, they, that's clearly what they did. But what I'm saying is, that is not a. That's not cool. Like, yeah, no, it, it's that money did not belong to them. They didn't work for it. They didn't uh, buy it because the house because they thought there might be money in the walls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I understand. And if no one came forward, then great. But as soon as these daughters come forward, mm-hmm. like that's their money. Yeah. Do, do the right thing. That's what I say. I'm with you. Like I'm I would. There's no way I would have challenged here. these daughters in court. Right. You would have been finders. Nice guys, losers, here you go. <laughs> well, I'd make sure, you know, I'd go through all the legal process of making sure that they are who they say they were and it all checked out. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't like if they came knocking on my door, I wouldn't just go, all right, here. <laughs> but I would I would go through that process and then say, well, okay, then it's definitely your money. Would you like interview their cousins and be like, what kind of daughters were they? Were they good daughters or, you know, <laughs> do they deserve this? And at the very least, you're inviting a a heap of bad luck and karma upon your head. Well, if you believe that kind of stuff, sure. <laughs> it comes around. <laughs> what goes around comes around. That's my motto. Well, that's another one. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. <laughs> what goes around comes around. And then the third one, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Uh, or what about this guy in Georgia, the public defender? Talk about a jerk. Yes. There's no, this guy had no legal standing whatsoever, whether he was from Texas or anywhere. Yeah. I didn't I didn't look him up to see what his name was but in 2013 a public defender found um a, a, a diamond ring I guess an engagement ring that was worth something like 10 10,000 dollars and just put it in their pocket and walked away whistling man what a <laughs> I mean especially an engagement ring right Ooh, that's mine yep oh god what a jerk no, I, I agree. And um, he got in trouble for it, from what I understand. He, they, when the person went back and said, I lost my engagement ring at the Target. Help me. The Target said, well, of course, we're going to help you. Calm down. Calm down. Peace, brother. And they pulled up their <laughs> surveillance um, videos and saw the public defender finding the ring and pocketing it. And they put a warrant out for the public defender's arrest for, I think, larceny, actually. At the very least, for not going to lengths to find the person whose ring it was. Yeah, not even lengths. Length. (laughs) Pick up a phone. (laughs) (laughs) Or go into the Target and be like, hey, I need to speak to a manager. (laughs) Well, it's funny. Uh, It says one of the things that you can and should do is like to do that and go mm -hmm. like give that diamond ring to the manager at Target. And like I would never do that if it was something super valuable. I wouldn't trust. I wouldn't trust them. I would keep it (laughs) under my own control. Uh-huh. And go to the cops. Just walk around with a gun drawn on everybody. Like, get back, get back. I found somebody's diamond ring. Get back. It's Stop mine. Stop looking at me. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, maybe I should just go ahead and rob some place now that I got my gun out and I'm protecting this diamond <laughs> ring. And you enter into a life of crime totally inadvertent. It's a justice thing again. Like, I, I don't want, it's, people should have stuff that is rightfully theirs, not like, oh, well, I just happened to get lucky today. Right, it's right. It's that whole yeah, get like rich a, quick, like, that's what's wrong with this country. Yeah. 
For Man. Sure. It, and I mean, I know you're right about the 500 grand in the behind the toaster <laughs> oven. The diamond ring is even more cut and dry to me for sure. But um, that's, yeah, this is in a parking lot and it was just lost, yeah. you know? Um, so, yeah, th- there are certain things that you want to do if you find lost property that is contemporary, that's obviously lost, that's obviously new. Um, And one of the first things you want to do is take it to the cops and say, "Uh, here, here's my name and number in case somebody doesn't doesn't claim this, but I'm officially giving it to you, the cops, for safekeeping. And then probably take out an ad in the paper or on Craigslist or both, and then uh, kick back and wait for the kudos and the praise for being a hero. Yeah, or for that thing to be returned to you if no one claims it. Yep, depending on where you are. I think, it, like you said, in the UK, it's something like a, a month. In California, it's I saw 120 days. I've also seen 90. Um, yeah, if you do all the right things and follow all the right steps, it can be yours, free and clear. Not only free and clear like you're not going to be arrested, free and clear where the person can come back and say, oh, you know, I, I that was my ring. If you are a jerk, you can say, no, it's my ring now. And the cops will be like, it's it's their ring now. They followed all the right moves. Yeah. They also recommend if it's something really, really valuable, maybe like get an attorney on, on the thing. Like maybe one who would find a diamond ring and not return it. <laughs> right, exactly. He's a public defender too. That's what I don't get. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean. If it was like an entertainment attorney, it would make much more sense. <laughs> It would, I guess. But a public defender's like, well, I don't get paid. Yeah, uh, maybe. This is a really thankless job, and uh, I'm going to do something for myself for once. And then they ended <laughs> up in jail for doing something for themselves for once. And then needed a public defender. Yes, ironically. Should we take a break? <sighs> yeah, we're going to take a break, Chuck. And then we are going to go under the sea. Yeah, where things get really confusing. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's Rainwater. Sip the sky. Hey there, everybody. Here's some bonus stuff you should know. This time it's about traveling to Orlando for business. Orlando has tons of places to host your conferences and meetings. Dr. Michael Edwards, CEO of Ocean Insight, said it best. Orlando is as much a business capital as an entertainment one. And when the day is done, you can kick off each evening at one of 46 Michelin-rated restaurants. What's not to love? So check out Orlando, where the possibilities for business travel are unbelievably real. 
Learn more at orlandoforbusiness.com. All right, so this is where things get super, super convoluted. (laughs) When you're talking about uh, shipwrecks and literal treasure from like, you know, uh, an ancient galleon, Mm -hmm. um, or maybe not ancient, but let's just say galleon, you know? It could be, yes. Did they have uh, galleons in ancient times? They had, oh, you know, the oldest intact shipwreck was recently found in the Black Sea. Did you see it? Uh Uh-uh. It's an ancient Greek ship. Okay, so ancient Greek. Yeah, like that's how ancient. It's not even Greek. It's Greek. Yeah. It's so ancient. Um, It's the kind that Odysseus was lashed to when they were going past the sirens. It's like that kind of ship. It's that old, right? Yeah. And um, it's fully intact, just laying on its side at the bottom of the Black Sea. It's just beautiful, beautiful little shipwreck. That would be an ancient galleon, I guess you could call it. All right, so... This is where, like, I don't even know how to talk about this almost because it's so convoluted because mm-hmm. it can it can matter whose ship it originally was. It can matter what was on that ship. It can matter where the ship is now resting mm-hmm. in whose waters or if it's international waters or partially on one side or the other, which is when it gets super confusing. Who the ship was leased from. Who it was leased from. Who is in charge of – because most of these aren't accidents. I know – uh, that it is pointed out that sometimes like a scuba diver might find something like this, but usually it's an expedition looking for the stuff right. specifically. So who runs that or whose insurance companies have a claim mm-hmm. and what international agreements are made. And it's just, it's almost like it's so case by case. There really is no rule. Yeah. If you thought land property was convoluted under undersea archeology span property, treasure property is just totally off the charts. So with um, (laughs) – that was one of the nerdiest sentences I've ever uttered. (laughs) You know, I wrote an article years ago about undersea archaeology, and I I did a lot of that research then. And Mm -hmm. it is just really like – basically what happens is is once something is found, then everyone just lawyers up and starts fighting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think the reason why um, it's it's particularly convoluted and, and um, contentious for the undersea um, treasure is that the treasures that they're finding are just so eye-poppingly valuable yeah. that it's worth, you know, going to court for 15, 20 years over. Yeah, billions of dollars in some cases. Yeah, there was a wreck called the San Jose that was discovered in – it was announced in 2015. I'm not quite sure when – Columbia discovered it, but it's off the coast of Cartagena. And in 2015, the Colombian government came forward and said, we found the San Jose. That was a galleon. It was a galleon. It was sunk by the British 300 years ago. It wasn't Garik. Uh, no, no, it was uh, <laughs> it was Spanish. <laughs> but it was transporting gold, silver, gems from Peru back to Spain to, to finance a war. It was loaded with with valuables. And they think that this wreck today, the valuables aboard, are worth between $1 and $12 billion. Yeah, this is not something that any one of these parties or countries is going to 
give up on. No, it's the kind of shipwreck, it's the kind of treasure that can actually affect world markets, like the value of goods on world markets above on land, because this stuff has been under the sea and out of the market for so long. When it comes onto the market, it could actually depress the value of the of like gold because there's so much of it suddenly coming on the market. That's how rich this treasure is. Yeah, and it's funny here, this article you sent, um, there is a, a UNESCO convention in 2001 on underwater cultural heritage findings mm-hmm. that have best practices. They're not actually like, you know, laws. And they're, they're like, we'd be happy to help out with this, but nobody's called us. <laughs> That's so UN. Yeah, they, they don't want uh, them involved, basically. They're just like, no, we're going to work it out with the lawyers. Yeah, they're like, hey, thanks. Thanks a lot. Just go sit over there until we call you, okay? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so the, uh, the San Jose has a lot of people arguing over it. For example, Spain is saying, well, it's a Spanish galleon. Give us our, give us our money back. Colombia is like, yeah, it's in our coastal waters. That's our territorial waters. That belongs to us. Peru says, yeah, you guys came and extracted that from our indigenous population back when we were Spanish calling. (laughs) And that's one that doesn't come up very often, but you'd think it should, especially in the New World stuff, right? Yeah, like that that was our original stuff to begin with even. Mm -hmm. So it should have never been on that boat. Ironically, they probably have the least claim to it, sadly enough. I know. um, There's there's no way they're going to get it. There's a, I wonder, though, if they'll get a portion of it, though. I think if they said, no, this is, this is a thing, this is legitimate, they could conceivably get caught in, but they're not going to get the whole thing. I don't think anybody's going to get the whole thing no, I free agree. and clear. So there's all these different groups arguing over it. And as big of a mess as it is, it's actually not the biggest mess of a um, treasure found abo- aboard a shipwreck. There's a ship called the Notre Dame de Deliverance. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, that was um, that sank forty miles off of Florida mm-hmm. in seventeen fifty five. I mean, one of just hundreds and hundreds of ships to to crash off the coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. And a U.S. salvage company found it in two thousand two, and this is the one that I was talking about. It's partially in international waters, partially as part of the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. Yep, uh, the Spaniards leased the ship from the French West Indies Company. Right. And so they all have a claim. And then complicating this is the fact that in the United States, uh, in 1987, we passed the Abandoned Shipwrecked Act, which means all shipwrecks within U.S. waters, uh, which is, what, like three miles off of any of our coastlines? Yes. um, Are U.S. properties. Is that right? Yep. So it's super convoluted. And that's actually the the territorial waters thing has kind of been the the toughest one or the um the 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 best claim that any country can lay on a ship is no it's in our territorial waters customarily that means that's yours that's yours to deal with but when the ship is in international waters or partially in international waters that's just a whole different ball game and even when something's in territorial waters like spain's not going to go away no you know, if, when two to three billion dollars is on the table, they're going to say, no, we're going to use our diplomats to press, you know, at least getting a portion of this. France will do the same thing. And uh, the salvers are like, well, hey, wait a minute. This is this is ours. And actually, at first, a Florida, um, a Florida judge said, yep, it's yours. Free and clear. Two to three billion dollar booty is yours. Take it. Put on this eye patch. 
in this cool hat and go get it. Well, um, but you have to get Spain's permission to go get it. Right, exactly. So Spain's going to say, no, we're, we want to have something to do with this. But that Shipwrecked Act, the whole, the whole reason why the United States is even involved is from that Shipwrecked Act of 1987. It's very similar to that UK Act where it basically says, nope, it belongs to us. We're the United States. It's in our territorial waters. It belongs to us. But here's a significant portion of it, usually like 25% of it. And the point of that is to keep um, salvers and treasure hunters interested enough that they're actually going out and salvaging these archaeological sites, but they're doing it under the jurisdiction of the state or federal government, which says you've got to keep daily logs, you have to break the wreck site into strings of square meters, you have to catalog everything, you have to have a certified marine archaeologist on board throughout the entire voyage overseeing this whole thing. you got to do it right, and we'll give you 25% of what we can get for it, which is substantial in some, some cases, but it's not like treasure hunting's like a cheap activity. It's a very expensive undertaking. Yeah, it's seriously expensive. And like they don't just like these treasure hunting companies don't just go in there and say, hey, I think there's something there. Let's go grab it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do all their research because it is so expensive to ensure as much as possible that they will have a claim to it in the end. Right. You know, they don't just go in there willy nilly in hopes that the courts will decide with them. No, no, for sure. But I mean, I think that's the probably a significant portion of the operating cost of a treasure hunting outfit is the court costs and fees um, to to get the to to get the rights to the treasure. I would guess. Yeah, and in this case too, I'm sure France was like Florida judge. Like I don't care what you say. But Florida judges have a big say in this. They're about as professional as you could get as far as as um, passing judgment on treasure claims for sunken ships. Oh, yeah. Florida has the most sunken ships of any state in the Union, something like 6,000 to 10,000 estimated shipwrecks yeah. from piracy, hurricanes, all this stuff. Um, Florida's got it all. So if you're gonna, if you're looking for a judge who has experience on ruling on a case like this, Florida's probably your best bet. Yeah, don't go to Oklahoma. <laughs> no, <laughs> that would be my uh, yeah. my suggestion. That's just good advice all around. And it can also so um, if you're a treasure hunter, not only can the court costs be killer, you might be put in jail. There's a guy named Tommy Thompson who's a very famous treasure hunter who found the wreck of the— um, Edmund Fitzgerald? No. Ugh. Although, man, there are a few wrecks that fascinate me more than the Edmund Fitzgerald. I can just sit there and look at those eerie pictures of it all day long. I can I just sing that song over and over. Um, you shouldn't do that. It'll drive <laughs> you insane. No, he found the wreck of the SS Central America, which was a steamer that went down in a hurricane off the coast of South Carolina in— 1857, with 425 souls aboard and and three tons of gold. And um, he found it. And he went and sold a bunch of stuff and didn't pay his investors. And a judge put him in jail in Ohio, where he's been sitting since, I think, 2015, because he refuses to say where 500 gold coins from the wreck went. He just won't say. He said that he gave them to somebody in Belize, but he can't remember who they are. <laughs> that's really, that's what, his, that's what his lawyer had to tell the Washington Post. That's pretty funny. Yeah. I'd just be he like, gave I, it to somebody. <laughs> and he can't remember who. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish we could have been a little bit more, uh, like, black and white about the shipwreck thing, but it's just, Mm-mm. 
it just so depends on the case. Yeah. You know, there, there is no there, solid rule. There's a couple solid rules. There's one above ground where if you are caught digging on federal land, that's a felony. Yeah. Um, and any stone tool found in the United States belongs to the federal government automatically. Dang, but Skippy. I would guess unless it's in Texas, in which case the Texas authorities and the federal authorities would fight with one another over your right to own that stone tool. Yeah, that's a good point. So I think that's about it for Finders Keepers. Good one. Yeah, I thought so too. Uh, if you want to know more about Finders Keepers, go find something and say Finders Keepers and see what happens and then let us know. And in the meantime, we're going to sit here and do listener mail. I'm going to call this uh, Stanford prison, uh, prison Experiment follow-up. Angry follow-up. Yeah, you read this one? Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, guys, just want to say thank you for your episode on Zimbardo. I'm a cognitive psychologist and have been teaching for years, and it makes me angry in a way I have never been angry before. <laughs> uh, you do your best to fact-check and show that you're giving the student— and she's not talking about our show, by the way. Right. She's talking about Zimbardo. <clears throat> uh, you do your best to fact-check and show uh, you're giving the students reliable information, but then— Someone pulls crap like this, uh, again, Zimbardo, and causes serious problems for us as teachers. Uh, how did I handle this chapter this year? Well, number one, I taught it as normal as the text takes forever to be updated. And number two, I showed them the video, uh, Ghost of Abu Ghraib. Is it Abu Ghraib? Mm-hmm. Abu Ghraib, and had, to, had them write about how Zimbardo's study predicted this would happen. And then three, had them all listen to your podcast. Uh, now they are all as angry as I am, partially at me for doing that, but I wanted them to feel the effort they put into it uh, go to waste. <laughs> but I had a very interesting observation in one class. Uh, the publicity and popularity of this study, could it have actually created the dystopian prison environment in part at Abu Ghraib through expectation? Oh, I see, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I guess so. Thing. Basically, uh, was Zimbardo the actual Lucifer in his book, Mm-hmm. having an effect not only in society as a whole and what we believe about humanity, but how we act. We now live in his hell. <laughs> then she says, thanks again. Uh, <laughs> and that is from Allison uh, Deming from uh, Tri-County Tech. Temporarily insane with rage. That's right. I don't blame her. Yeah, that was that was a good episode, man. One of the best. Yeah, thanks, Allison. Yeah, thanks a lot, Allison. Thanks for writing in with the support. We agree with you wholeheartedly. It's passion. It's not anger. That's right, man. Or maybe it's anger. I don't want to tell you how you feel. <laughs> man, Chuck, you are killing it these days. <laughs> so uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can go to stuffyoushouldknow.com and check out our social links. I'm at thejoshclarkway.com, and we're all via email at stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, 
no microplastics, no nothing. Enjoy the smooth, clean taste of still rainwater or the cold, pressured bubbles of sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And for a coupon, text STUFF to 251-292-8887 and receive $2 off a 12-pack case of Richards Rainwater. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.